Welcome to Growth Island, your go-to podcast on how to be the best version of yourself. Now, let's join your host, Mess Freeze, as he interviews high performers and experts in nutrition, meditation, exercise, relationships, business, general health, and life's bigger mysteries. Welcome to Growth Island again. How do you become one of the world's very best, not just good, but like very, very best in the world? I got uh, Michael Gebby in today, who has participated in the Olympics five times, even won medals. He's also a healer, so he does resistance stretching with top yeah, athletes. body work. Yeah, I work on athletes and householders. And, and then you're a bit advocate for living a healthy, good life. Yeah, well, that's easy to do down here, or easier. Yeah. So, Michael, thanks for coming in. Yeah, pleasure, buddy. Pleasure. Why, uh, why windsurfing? What's so special about that? Um, I grew up on the beach in northwest Florida up in the Panhandle. And the spot that I grew up at, we, we lived right on the water. We owned tiny little efficiency apartments. We made a dock on the end, and we had, I think, 300 foot of waterfront. And it was on the bay side facing the mainland. So it was an island, Okaloosa Island, Fort Walton Beach, Florida. And we were sailing catamarans and small little these boats that you could buy for like 300 tops of a cigarette carton or something, literally like a cool boat. That was like a styrofoam boat. That was like our first little sailboat. My dad was a sailor. He had a 45 foot wooden catch on the end of the dock that they sank trying to sail to Mexico. Then they got a little bit of insurance money and they bought a 50 foot all wooden schooner built in 1918. So I'm a son of a sailor and uh, living in Florida, we lived in the water. So we, you know, my brother and I wake up in the morning, ran off the end of the dock, you know, straight in. We'd spend the whole day, 16 hours in the water you know, pre-sunscreen. <laughs> I remember dad putting like, uh, you know, mineral oil. That was, you know, and then coconut oil came around and Panama Jack sunscreen started in Panama City, which was the next town, big town over. But uh, windsurfing was like an extension of Hobie sailing and surfing mixed. Mm-hmm. And I was a surfer and I was a Hobie sailor. And what's Hobie? Sailor? Hobie cat is a catamaran, but it's okay. a beach cat. The one that has the really rounded banana hulls. So yeah. it's very easy to drive up on the beach. So it was the first popular like mainstream cultural recreational boat that garnered like a events where people would be, you know, Myers Rum would be a sponsor or something. And so 200 boats would show up to, you know, typically the boat Hobie 16 is two people with two trapezes yeah. and you fly hulls, but you can pull it up on the beach and we had a beach town. So I didn't grow up in the culture of sailing out of a yacht club, even no. though by the time I got the Olympics, it was called Olympic yachting and windsurfing became Olympic sport in 84. So I started windsurfing in 81. It was in my backyard. My brother sailed home. So I was like, all right, I'm the older brother. So <laughs> give me that thing. We had a bit of current in front of the house. So I'd leave the beach and then I would just end up, you know, two miles downriver basically. And I'd have to paddle back or walk along the shoreline. Finally, I got to where I could stay in one place or go against the current. But for me, it was a great escape. I didn't need someone to help me drag. The, we had a Hobie 16 in the beach and a Hobie 14, which was a one-man boat without a jib. But, you know, nobody to drag the thing up or down the beach. So the windsurfer was like an extension of... Hobie sailing. And in the summers, I taught people how to sail. And then that switched to windsurfing as soon as windsurfing came into our town, I think in 1980. And a few guys in my town were some of the best windsurfers in the world. They were very gifted. So when I started back then, like now we go to YouTube and so on. Like, I mean, you know, the original windsurfer is 12 foot long. It's basically made out of the same material as a Frisbee, you know, soft, flexible foam board with a polyethylene finish on the outside. If it got really hot, the board would change its shape just from being sitting on the beach. So we would put the things under the bumper of a car to change the shape of the board when we're racing. <laughs> so that's how that's how the sport started. Yeah. And the original board was called the Windsurfer brand, you know, like tissue. 
or Kleenex is the you know original tissue brand. But uh, then other boards came out. By the time I got out of high school, I didn't know what I was going to do. But windsurfing was going to be in the 84 Olympics, which I found out in the fall of 83 when I went on a two and a half month windsurfing. I can't say vacation, but like a road trip with two other guys. And we did a couple national championships and a world championships. I won a really small world championship. And then at the nationals, I got like eighth and then another big world championship, which was the biggest class. And to give you an idea, the windsurfer class... In 1983, the World Championship was 880 people competing. So it was a monstrous event, yeah. big social event. Windsurfing got real popular, ended up being like a little bit ahead of surfing and ahead of skateboarding and mountain biking. It, it, funny enough, I think it was probably the first extreme sport. It had a lot of color. It was very fashionable. Nobody was going fast. It was, you know, everybody would sit around on the beach and watch other people, you know, struggle to get the thing going. So it was a very social sport. How was the culture? So like <clears throat> surfing had this kind of image of being the rebellious, windsurfing is a bit more gear. So in Denmark, windsurfing is seen as higher class. Yeah. How was it back then? Was it the rebels well, or was it like you said, coming from the yacht club? I would say it was the, you know, the Bob Marley listening, you know, folks that wanted to go to the beach and, you know, drink a rum and Coke or whatever, you know, rum and coconut and hang out and, you know, play some nice music and chill. That was the culture. That was the scene, you know. So it was a great, there was a regatta almost every weekend, yeah. either a Hobie regatta or a windsurfing event when I was, and my dad had this 50 foot boat. Yeah. So he would be the race committee. All you had to do was give him like two kegs of beer and he would show up at eight o'clock in the morning and drop anchor and be the race committee and 20, 30 people be on the boat. And, you know, he ran events. So if we weren't, if I wasn't competing, a lot of times I'd come and hang out in the boat and watch, you know, uh, I grew up with a, one of my mentors in town was a guy named Carlton Tucker. He was a multiple national and maybe a few time world champion and uh, you know sailing the hobie cat so and then these aussies started showing up and guys from australia and hawaii that were like the real legends uh, we had the biggest hobie dealer in the world so it was a sailing culture by the time i tried to do the olympic trials in 84 in los angeles then you realize that windsurfing had been put into the culture of yachting so that's like going to, you know, a middle class, you know, golf course or an equestrian center, you know, a country club because it's a waterfront country club. You have to have a membership. You know, you typically can't, you know, buy drinks at the bar. You know, that's a fun culture. Um, How did but, it fit in? Were you always a rebel? So I've only well, known you. I think, you know, the windsurfers had to sort of sneak in there and, and get into what we call the Corinthian sport. And then windsurfing exploded by the time 84, 85, 86. I was a pro windsurfer. I was getting paid a salary, but to, to be able to train for the 88 Olympics, for example, I had to put all my money into a trust fund through USYRU, which was the head of basically US Sailing's name back then. And that was what you had to do to keep your amateur status. And then by the time they got past 92, then they opened it up and you could keep whatever money you made as a pro. I was a pro windsurfer to pay for my Olympic habit because the US didn't have a ton of money for Olympic windsurfers. I mean, if you got $30,000 in sponsorship from U.S. Sailing, didn't even pay for your plane tickets for the year. So you're spending $100,000, $150,000 in travel expenses. So it's a machine if you're going to do 25 regattas and, and then train. Mm -hmm. And as the sport got more professional, you had to get to places, you know, if you prepared for a world championship or an Olympics, you would go there four years before the same time as Olympics and camp out for a month, figure out where you want to live, you know, where do you park your boat. So that your housing situation is close to the water so you can get, you know, multiple, you know, maybe three times you go sailing just to look at the conditions because you're trying to assess uh, the environment that you're going to have to be an expert in when that one, one week long sailing event happens. So as the weather moves through, you have to know what to look for. You watch the tides, the currents, the 
the weather patterns. You sail off of the the shape of the shoreline. And, yeah, it's a technical sport. So it's a heady sort of like playing three dimensional chess. Yeah. So how do you become one of the best? Like, what what do you think is the difference between you and all the other guys that were like windsurfing is the bomb? The sport fit my body because I was small and I always wanted to be really good at something, and I was very I was very addicted to it. So I just did it all the time. I didn't know anything better. You know? By the time the Sydney 2000 Olympics came around and I was about to retire, I mean, I was going to retire from Olympic sailing, but I was still getting paid to be a pro. I was doing clinics. I developed equipment for different sponsors. So I was a technical equipment developer. Hmm. Um, there's a whole subculture of people who do that in surfing and kiting, windsurfing, obviously sailboats. So that, you know, that was a good lifestyle. I mean, I, I, was, I went to 60 countries must have been a really competing. Fun so, you know, like a band, traveling band of like a circus or group of pirates. And yeah. everywhere you go, you'd have your buddies. And and they were from all these different countries. And every country had their characters, you know. And, you know, I had good friends in Denmark and Sweden. And, you know, it um, it was interesting that all these little opportunities came out of it. You know, like being an Olympic team, uh, when you get done with the Olympics, you get to go have lunch at the White House. So I had lunch with three different presidents, you know, with 450 other athletes, but you shook their hand, you got a picture taken. But that was some interesting things that they, like that would come through. Yeah. Who had the firmest handshake of the presence? Wasn't Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably Clinton. I was amazed at the charming power of that, of Bill Clinton. He could yeah. look at you and just, you just thought you were the most important person in the world. Then the next person coming, he'd have, he was just, he's a very gifted people person. So. That was an interesting experience. I didn't really like much about his politics, but when I met him, I was like, man, that guy's got skills. <laughs> I mean, if you didn't even know what he did, you were like, you would never, he was one of those unforgettable, I think Obama or maybe JFK was like that, you know, just yeah. a really powerful persona. Interesting. Hillary is complete opposite, very quiet, yeah, brooding and you know, looking around at everything. <laughs> Different. Yeah. Seems clear. Well, Bill might be uh, the people person that sees a big part of the brain as well behind. Yeah, I think they're obviously both very clever, yeah. very accomplished people to get to make it to that level. Yeah, yeah, yeah you don't be driven. Yeah, yeah, driven. So, how was it back then? Like now, we have such a big focus on health and performance and so on, like diet and so on. How was it? When well, we being an athlete, I mean, as soon as I started training the Olympics, you know, you wake up the first day, oh, okay, I'm, you know, you're formally training for Olympics, and now you start looking at breakfast a little bit different. Like, okay, so if somebody told me to eat something I don't want to eat, I'd probably eat it if I thought it would help me perform. So. Yeah, I experimented on myself for, you know, been continuously. I mean, life is an experiment for everybody. Mm. You know, I remember eating uh, high carbs, low fat, and I did that for almost 10 years. And then I discovered Ayurvedic medicine or the system of eating from yoga called Ayurveda. And I read an Ayurvedic cookbook, which told me about the dashas of the body typing. And that was like the, I was sort of into that realm already because you would hang out with pro athletes from other sports doing, like I did the first X Games And it was like Tony Hawk and, you know, the, the sky surfers and BMX bike guys, you know. And they were already like, you know, they had personal trainers. They had, you know, I'm eating like this because, you know, Tony was already in his 30s at that time. And he was, you know, trying to keep up kids over 18. And a lot of, you know, injury prevention becomes a big part of it. So, yeah, I think you take on any technology, uh, lifestyle traits, trends, belief systems that help you perform and recover better because anybody can train their butt off. But the, mm -hmm. the trick is recovering and reducing stress and not having things like allergens or I remember just stuffing my face all the time. I was always trying to keep my weight up. I'm, I was really light and I'd go to the Olympics and lose 10 pounds in a week. 
yeah. of muscle, not a six percent body fat, you know. So I went from one fifty to one forty by the end of the event. That was stress. That's crazy. But I have a body type that's that's catabolic. So when I get stressed, my body eats muscle. When you're somewhere in the middle and somebody has more cathodomin or the water and earth element, they would actually gain weight if they got stressed. So that was interesting to learn that people had different body types and you quickly saw in the environment of living in a house full of guys and maybe two of the guys had medals and one guy was a world champion and this, you know, everyone was the best guy from their country. I hung around a little, you know, six or eight, a group of guys that were like the alpha males. We trained together because we knew we kept pushing ourselves further away from the guys that were maybe at the top 10. And uh, we were good friends and we had done numerous Olympics together. And then we knew when it, if whoever would end up, you know, if there were two good Kiwis. There was sometimes, you know, five French guys that could potentially win a gold medal. Yeah. There were teams that were really powerful. The U.S. team, um, we had a lot of talent, but I seemed to always win. So it probably, in hindsight, wasn't that great for my sport because I squashed all the guys for five Olympics that were trying to come up behind me. And in fact, the guy that got twice second in Olympic trials ended up switching countries because his parents were born in Chinese Taipei. So the last two Olympics that he lost the trials to me, he he finally went to the Olympics for China. He wanted to go for the U.S., but he went. Yeah. So it's political, but we live with people and you train with them and the environment of traveling and, and, and it's a stressful environment. You know, you're living out of a suitcase. You start doing stuff that helps you function. Yeah. Like I didn't drink coffee until I was 45 years old. I just never got into it. You know, I did the carbo loading thing, low fat, then I switched it completely to high fat, low carbs. And then I was a raw foodist for seven years in the middle of that. I was a vegetarian from 1995 to 2000. So I did two Olympics, 96 Olympics in 2000 as a vegetarian, which was very unusual. I think the last time I checked in the... That was very early before the became... Yeah, 1996. I think there were seven people on the whole, the 10,500 athletes I could find mm. that were vegetarians because I, I, I sought them out. I was curious, you know. But I remember reading, you know, stories about um, Dave Scott or uh, Carl Lewis. Edwin Moses was a vegetarian. So some of the, the guys that were the uh, legacy, you know, trendsetters, famous people back then, they, you know... And Carl Lewis had an interview. He says, well, in the off season, I eat meat. But when I'm training or competing, I won't eat meat. It's too heavy. And I wasn't eating meat to, to not be healthy. I was just, just didn't want to be involved with the killing of animals. I just had to sort of have that as an idea. And I had done enough research. I had friends that were nutritional specialists. I had doctor friends that mentored me. So they're like, yeah, you know, and I, I discovered I had a body type that does quite well on vegetarian diet. And then I was high raw. It was seven years. I ate completely raw food, nothing cooked, you know, raw nuts, seeds. Mm -hmm. How did you manage to do that traveling around the world all the time? That must um, have taken a bunch of time. Well, I was single at the time, so I could spend two, three hours a day cooking cooking, and mostly chopping or preparing yeah. or foraging or, you know, visiting my favorite farmer friends that had the best food ever. And I had a collection of, you know, eccentric people that had killer farms and they might have magnets on their water or they were pulling Ormus out of their water. There's all sorts of crazy stuff going on. I got, you know, I would call that more like the hippie culture, drive your feet up, your bus off into the woods and live an ideal, logical life, you know. But I, I like all that. I mean, that's one of the reasons I live down here. It's very easy to live a, a healthy life. We're not wearing underwear per se. No. Barefoot and, you know, board shorts is, I'm happiest if I have one piece of clothing on. I mean, a little AC at night because it gets a little sticky under the sheets, but. um, It's a good life. Though. It is a good life. And that's this it. place, I mean, I live on the water and we can kite every day. I get, I get done working, oh, four or five o'clock, half hour sunlight, boom. I mean, I, I rig in my backyard. I launch literally off my condo and, and kite point is my beach. So, <laughs> yeah, it's very blessed. Life. I'm looking at how I can come back next winter. So, yeah. Uh, so half the winters here is, is so beautiful. 
Why did you change from the weekend diet and the raw diet? Laziness, family, not committing as much time to trying to maintain the carcass. Yeah. Yeah. Just not taking care of myself like I would. When you have a, when you, and I have two kids now, one's five and one's nine months. So, yeah, they, you know, when you come home, they're eating up two, three hours of just, you know, holding the baby or, you know, changing the diapers or giving them a bath or, you know, getting them dressed for school. So, you know, the t- your priorities change and you're, my wife's not a vegetarian. In fact, now I'm not a vegetarian, which slowly slipped in the last couple of years because, in, you know, cooking chickens for the family and fish and meat, I'd taste it. I, I never had a problem with the taste of meat. Meat tastes no. fantastic. I mean, barbecue is incredible, you know. Um, we lived in the wa- on the water in Florida. Every day we were eating something out of the, you know, we were catching crabs off the end of the dock. I was spearfishing. I was throwing a seine net, throw net. We were constantly eating seafood. So... So what do you go like for specific kind of meat or like grass fed that you hear very much like the Dave Asprey or like... I mean, that's a luxury, but yeah. yeah, I mean, I just eat sort of what looks good. I don't eat a lot of meat, no. but I'm, I've sort of psychologically gotten over the... I avoided it for 23 years. I mean, I went, I think I went 15 or 17 years without even eating eggs and very little dairy. So, and I did fine on it. There's the part of me psychologically that thinks that, oh, maybe, uh, oh, maybe you're missing something or maybe that's why you're prematurely gray or, but, you know, I started seeing gray hair at 24, but I lived mm. a stressful life, you know, yeah. and I went hard, you know, I trained as hard as I could every day. I mean, I'm lazier than the, than the guys that are raw animals, but within my own realm of what I could, the capacity, what I could do, I went hard, you know, I'd wake up, we, you know, yeah. I'd get up a little bit later than everybody. I, I needed more sleep and typically I was reading something or researching something and I'd, I just have a lot of things that I've been interested in, you know, uh, related to consciousness or awareness. I would use the word spirituality, but it's too loosely used. But yeah, I mean, I have interest in, on how reality works and, you know, trying to master your mind and to trying to be, get, get a, a sport or having a discipline to eat a certain way. I mean, everybody can eat. There's no rules on eating. You can eat anything, literally. How much sleep did you get? You're saying you needed more sleep than us. I need my eight, eight hours. Eight, nine hours. Yeah. Ten would be optimal, which I haven't had in a long time. No. Yeah. But then, you know, one of my teachers says, you know, one of the secrets of longevity is sleep deprivation. Okay. So, and you go, well, that sounds counterintuitive. And so, not that was said without a lot of details. But this gentleman that mentioned that, his master they lived with for 14 years never slept. So, I find it very interesting. There's people that can pull stuff like it off. And at first, when you hear it, you go, baloney bullshit. You don't believe it. You know, it can't be true or it's... But if you study the lives of spiritual masters, of people that end up being very high-level developed consciousness, for example, a, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, they may sleep two hours a night. Winston Churchill during the Second World War was, you know, taking six 20-minute naps a day or something because he was always up. But he was probably really grounded, really peaceful, you know, maybe drank 20 cups of coffee. But he's the type of guy that he's so mellow that it would, you know, you'd have to hit him on the head with a bat, you know, for half an hour to get him upset. That's hmm. typically a kappa person, which Ayurvedically is somebody that's slow to get excited, slow to get moving, but they have great endurance and longevity. Like me, I'm quick to excitement, uh, very dry light. I talk fast. I change subjects mid-sentence. Uh, you know, I'm always, I'm uh, very easily stimulated by the environment. And then your body type somewhere in the middle. You're a little more grounded, a little more organized, a little more, you can stay on task. So um, in hindsight, that's probably why I do good with sports like kite surfing and windsurfing that consume all your energy or your or you, you crash. Mm-hmm. Like if you screen your kiting, if you crash, it's like always thinking. Yeah. So that's probably the main reason I windsurf. I'm sick of myself thinking all the time. Like, Jesus, this, 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 the, uh, what do they call it? The roommate inside is just going nonstop. So I'd go yeah. out windsurfing and, you know, the, get some peace for a while. 
the mind quiets. Yeah. So many people feel that when they when they go surfing. Yeah. For me, it's very much the the thrill and adrenaline. Like kitesurfing, when I'm jumping, I feel like so high. Yeah. And like that, like woo, something's gonna go wrong. Um, and luckily, landing most of the jumps right. Yeah, it's good to be stressed. I launch in front of a rocky jetty. Yeah. And every time within five seconds leaving the beach, I have to jump the rocks. Yeah. So it's forced sobriety. Yeah. You know, sometimes I have a couple of beers and maybe, you know, you know, a shot, of, you know, I'm a margarita or something. And I'm like, oh, the wind's picked up and you know, it didn't look good for the day. And you're like, mm, I'm a little tipsy. I'm like, well, take a couple deep breaths, you know, put your head underwater and uh, calm the mind, you know, and as soon as the kite gets moving, your, your instincts take over and it's like, okay. You got five, four, three, two, one second, pull the trigger, you got to, yeah. you know, and you jump the rock. You jump to your rocks, you're sticking up about a foot. But, but it's magical. It's just something Yeah, and then, you're, and then you land and you're in the pool, you know, the leeward side of that jetty, which is Kite Point. And, you know, I have my own little wave park in my backyard. So my 60 countries of a traveling is one of the best setups I've seen. So yeah. we feel very blessed to live here. Yeah. What about, you mentioned mindset. What did you do back then when you were alive? <clears throat> Competing at the top. And has that changed to like what you do mindset-wise? Well, the first thing you do is I think you observe everyone else because you, you can only relate from what's going on in your head. And I think the first thing you naively think that everybody thinks or acts the same or has the same perceptions. And you realize that people are really freaking strange and going in a hundred million different directions. Well, how many religions are there? Well, how many humans are there? That's how many, I mean, religion means realization of what, you know, self, God, universe, whatever created us, if that's even how it works. Mm. I mean, who, you know, we all sort of, have to deal with that daily level. Those kind of questions I've always been interested in. So mindset for me is like my perception of reality. And although I might have been consumed with a, a sport, it really wasn't about being the best. It was just so interesting and entertaining. It's, you know, I watched my five-year-old kid get into his train set and two hours later, he's still piddling with pieces. And my dad was always working on his boat. He loved his boat. It was a wooden boat. It was always trying to sink. So every day we got into it, oh, it's starting to sink, you know, say so to repair it or you know, fix something, the sails, the rigging, and the, the, you know, the diesel engine, which was, you know, 60 years old. My dad built his first car from the junkyard. He went and got a bunch of parts and built himself a Model T Ford. So he could build anything. My grandfather was sort of like that. So they were always playing with something. So, hmm. you know, windsurfing and just was like an extension of that. And I was pretty technically adept. I liked tweaking and I designed and tested and developed a lot of equipment. So that was very consuming because it's a creative process and you're trying to make something easier to ride or more fun and, you know, get that magic board. And I think I built a thousand custom boards at an average of a thousand bucks a board. So it's like, oh my God, that was a lot of money. Yeah. That was blown. You know, mm. most of the boards, sometimes you'd ride it three times and break it in half because they were high, you know, super lightweight carbon fiber over styrofoam. The technology got better, but we were, you know, the equipment development was consuming. Mm. So that was a, that kept it interesting. Yeah. I think in hindsight, when I got to the level, when I was coaching, the breadth of your experience looking backwards, you realize that you maybe have something that people don't have that you take for granted. And that is you just a commitment not to give up mm. willpower. And anybody that's successful just makes a decision. I will, you know, be a millionaire. I will own my own business. I will be an entrepreneur. I will, you know, I'll be the best at sport. And some people are unreasonable. And that's maybe the best way to be. It doesn't really have to do with anyone else. I never had anybody tell me I couldn't do anything in my life. So and my parents were very laid back. We lived, you know, I was eight years old. I had my own motorboat. Somebody drive up a jet ski. I'd take kids water skiing at eight years old, you know. So I had a, I can't say I had a lot of responsibility. I had a lot of freedom. Mm. And we played all day. So we were very developed and we'd go, 
when it was big windy days, I would take the Hobie cat and go wave jumping and I'd flip the cat around and get sucked out the inlet. Sometimes the bottom of the mass was on and, you know, I got myself in some trouble, but I always got out of it. And when you do stuff like that, in hindsight, you know, all the stuff when I was a World Cup windsurfer, the stuff that we play in, most people go out dying because it would be extreme conditions. So, but that's the price you pay to, to systemically build your way up and do extreme. Did you ever have you any know? of uh, your co-colleagues or like competitors that died under a race? Not during a race. I had one pro kite friend of mine break his back right in front of me, paralyzed himself, broke his neck. And that was in Nudus, Namibia, Africa. And I was working with Robbie Douglas and we were trying to break the world speed record. And it, I think it was the second year, which we didn't break the first or second year. We didn't break the record, but we had dug a trench by that time on this, this mud flat mm. that was very windy. And so we were sailing in a channel. So when you crashed, you left the, the three foot wide, one meter channel at its narrowest. And you would go downwind onto the beat, onto hard packed mud and sand. And, you know, going 60 knots and you would cartwheel an endo. So some guys took some beatings, you know, but this guy, a gentleman fell in the channel before him and was down and couldn't get his kite back up. And this guy, the French guy came down and stopped, but it was so windy he couldn't stand still. So then he slowly got skidded into the other guy's line set, Fuck. which made his kite make a little move. And it was blowing about 45, 50 knots. And he was on a 10 meter kite, which is massive, but it was a, a really strange, I can't even remember the name of the kite, but it, was a, it wasn't a sea kite. It was bridled like a foil kite, but it was inflatable. And that kite actually almost broke the world record a couple of times because it was the most depowerable kite in the world. Although you don't even necessarily need that much power. So he had high depower, but he got pulled in the other guy's line set and he pressed his bar and he got pulled quickly. His kite loaded and he got pulled and sucked into the other guy's kite and he went about 20 feet in the air and then came down inside the other guy's kite and broke, broke his spine. And what's weird is in hindsight, I had ran and thought I had just got my hands on him, but I actually got about a foot away from grabbing him. And he did that magic carpet ride, get sucked up. He went about mm. 100 feet away and then boom, and he was in this much water, started screaming a bloody murder. I ran over to him and it took me about 30 seconds to realize he's like, you know, because he started freaking out in French and my French is not fluent. He's like, hey, man, my, my, I'm, I can't move my arms. I can't move my legs. So when his kite was looping and dragging him and the other guy in an offshore wind with no safety, into this deep shark ridden water of this, this bay in Luteritz. And another guy came and jumped on his kite and stopped it pre-launching. And then we cut him out of his kite and put him on a board and waited for a, an ambulance to come and got him out of there. But a lot of coaches have died and then other athletes have, have died that I've known just from, you know, getting sick or accidents or doing other sports. Yeah, it happens. It attracts people that do many different extreme sports. Yeah. So uh, there's, there's many ways to go out early. How about um, when you've been coaching people, like anything you've seen that kind of is consistent with some of the best people or the best athletes? I think your job as a coach is trying to talk somebody out of talking themselves out of that they are a genius. When we're in school, we're taught there's, you know, one or two types of genius, like Albert Einstein. Oh, he's really good with numbers or, you know, he's very good at writing a thesis or he's very good logically. Like lawyers can take a lot of complicated information mm -hmm. and piece it together, but then there's For example, a mechanical genius, then there's people geniuses like, you know, Bill Clinton is a genius of people. I mean, that guy talks to anybody. And then there's, you know, guys that sort of bridge a bunch of different worlds like Tony Robbins, you know, like a motivational speaker. But in reality, he's, he's not telling you anything you haven't heard, but he's got such inspiration and then he's got all these connections and stories. And so he goes, well, if this guy did this and if you, you know, you, you know, you, you pay attention to this and you change your behavior patterns or you catch yourself in your dysfunction 
yeah, I mean, if you're if you're paying attention, you're going to evolve. And I think the toughest thing is not to be too hard on yourself and then just be brutally honest. You know, maybe don't tell anyone else where you're at, but everybody, you know, when I coach athletes, like, all right, so you want to be an Olympic gold medal. So everybody wants to do that. I can go and talk to 2000 kids in an auditorium at a school and say, here's, here's my medals. And, you know, how many people want a medal? And every kid, you know, 10 year old kids, oh yeah, the whole, you know, okay. So how many kids want to train eight hours a day for eight years? And now you look around and, you know, half have sat down because they're, maybe they're not into something that they want to do. Hmm that much intensity but if you'd love to do something and it hasn't been forced upon you you're going to do that kids get into stuff you know warren buffett 10 years old had read all the books on making money within you know three states or something from all the libraries because that's what he was into he's like i'm going to be rich and you know whatever your whatever your motives are artists you know we live in a world where people try to be tangible and realistic so say you're an artist i remember kids that were really gifted artists when i was a kid and their parents were like well you need to get into industrial art or work for a business and do stuff on a computer and they're like no no i'm gonna be a sculptor today and do some wild painting and do some driftwood and welding tomorrow and you know the guys that really stick with it they're they're just having a blast those those people are to me are you know the outliers because that's not very common we, we're typically uh governed and buffered and pushed into a, a very safe ensuring survival from our parents i mean we're only a couple of generations from our parents if you didn't come from old money which was you know 10, 15 generations of mansions and private jets and huge businesses, then, you know, we're two, three generations away from basically your parents, a lot of times living at survival levels, you know, like, and if it was wintertime at hundred years ago and you didn't have enough food, you know, you had to rough through the winter, you know, go down in the, the root cellar. If you lived in somewhere cold, like in Denmark or Canada, where it freezes, you know, half the year it's perma, permafrost. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. The world's really changed, but um, there's access to so many cool people. There's great places to get inspiration. And then, there's no rules. I mean, you can make your own life so easily doing anything now, which is fun. You know, like you have a mix of, you know, whatever you're doing with your business and then, you know, podcast. Thank you for letting me do your podcast because I've threatened to do one for years and four or five people this week. Like, all right, when are you going to get your podcast going? And then I'm going to interview guys like you that are interesting, you know, and motivate some people maybe. It is. Moving to resistance stretching. <laughs> I tried it myself now. What, yeah. What do you think? What do you think of it? I felt very loose afterwards. Yeah. I really liked the opening my chest. There was um, one thing is the pain goes away. Um, but for me, the opening of my chest and that lightness afterwards. That so was, you, um, you just said something interesting. Light goes in two directions. So there's weightless light and then there's lightweight and then there's light, like no more darkness. So pain and suffering is black hole in your body. Um, athletes know pain quite well because they train to the level that they can handle and then wake up the next day and you're not urinating blood or anything. But I remember three years after I retired, I woke up and I had a strange sensation and it was the realization that the first time in 20 years, my body didn't hurt. Like when I lifted my head off, you know, because I'd get up in the morning and, oh, you know, first thing that happened, it's like you just, like you were, you got in a fight, you know, like every day was somebody beat you up and it was yourself beating you up because to go fast as an athlete in a sport that's a power and technical sport, the more you output, the faster you go. I didn't have the leverage of the faster guys, so I had to sail with more uh, bravada, more intensity. And it's like a wrestling match. Windsurfing is like wrestling. So you're statically loaded, and then the equipment's you know getting pulled and wrenching. Your feet are in foot straps. You have a harness, so you can hook into the harness lines. So there's a huge amount of force that you're tapping into. And you're taking all that force and driving it through a universal, you know, where the sail attaches to the board, this little joint, rubber joint, and then, you know, driving off the fin. So it's a torque sport. 
And because of that, I injured my back in 1995 on a three and a half hour long distance race that I had to pump the whole time with a huge sale. There was very light wind and it was, it had some prize money in it. So I, I really went, I, the guy that should have easily beat me, I didn't let him beat me. He was one of my roommates and I made, I, so I beat him, but I paid a price that, that at the end of the race, I couldn't feel my arms. I mean, literally my arms are numb. So I knew my neck was out and I had two buddies that were chiropractors. One of them was actually at the event. So when I got into the beach, I was like, Oh, I'll just get Paul to adjust me because I, I knew I'd sort of pushed, I put so much output that I messed myself up. And it was the first time I realized, oh, that was probably stupid. You know, like you didn't need, but you know, I don't know the price. It was like $5,000 prize money or something. I was like, yeah, well, I could use an extra five grand before I go to Europe for, you know, two months of training or whatever. (laughs) I got back to the beach and the, uh, my chiropractor wasn't there. So I didn't get my neck adjusted. And then I parted my ass off because it was an Isle Morada and I was hanging out with a really fun friend. And, and the next day I was just frozen. And that was like the beginning of uh, first, my neck was frozen. A couple of days later, my, my back was frozen. And from 1995 to 2003, that was an eight-year stint. I think the longest I went without my back going out was about two weeks. So 2003, I had been retired for three years from Olympic competition, but I was coaching a couple of guys on the U.S. team and then a couple of other guys in Europe, all private athletes that were paying me to work with them. And one of my athletes was in St. Pete, and he ran into a guy named Bob Cooley, is the, the guy that developed and generated this system called the Genius of Flexibility. It's a geniusofflexibility.com. And Bob got on the phone because he had talked to this kid. He was maybe the best in the nation at the time. And Bob goes, give me the phone and put, put this guy, Gebby, put your coach on the phone because I want to talk to him. And he called me up and he goes, Gebby, you don't know who I am. My name's Bob. He says, I know you get this. And he said that a couple of, he says, I know you get this already. He says, you're going to come over. I'm going to stretch you. I'm going to change your life. And he goes, I figured out something that nobody knows. And I know, you know, and and my athlete had mentioned that, you know, my back was a problem. He says, come on over. He says, I'll give you a demo and and we could, we'll blow your mind. And so I called a doctor friend of mine that was lived in Miami. He just bought a new AMG AMG Mercedes, which is like a 600 horsepower race car. And I said, let's drive to Tampa and go visit some friends and and see this guy. He said, okay. So we we blasted over there. So I showed up and there were two NFL football players that were getting worked on by Bob. Bob's got a trail of pro athletes that follow him around. He's the guy that if you send him anybody to him, he, he can fix anything. He's one of those guys. He's a true master. But he was a professor of mathematics, so he's very intelligent. But him and his girlfriend were walking across the street. They got hit by a car and she was almost immediately killed. And a couple, four hours later, he walked out of the, you know, the ER room, the emergency room with a broken collarbone and whatever else had happened. But next few months he tried to get his movement back and he realized from the trauma of the impact he had a huge amount of fascia and scar tissue and he was a very gifted mover and had high body awareness he was like a choreographer dancer style person he was i think he was even involved with the movement they were studying movement Hmm. like some sort of not-for-profit that he was partially involved with so he knew he had he had all this dense scar tissue and fascia from the trauma of the accident and watching his girlfriend get killed so he sat down one day and he said i'm going to stretch myself and he said, I'll do it for six hours. And so he sat maybe with his legs out in front of him and he tried to get his head to touch the ground, which he could typically do and he couldn't do it. And he sat there for a few hours, you know, according to him, then in a very short period of time, like a 30 second period, he went into an altered state and he realized that he resisted the direction he wanted to stretch, which is what the body innately did because he'd sort of step, stumbled into a meditative state. And then his head went to the ground pretty quick. And the more he fought the direction that he was trying to stretch, the more he stretched. So then what he did is he realized something that we, if you think about it, stretching is contracting like a yawn and fighting it. But if you have an injury in the body, it's, it's like you're stuck in the contracted part of the 
like you can't yawn. So if somebody pulls that tension out of you when you resist, it literally pulls the trauma, the cognitive shock that gets stuck energetically in the fascia tissue. So when we get older, what makes people inflexible is fascia density. And we used to believe the fascia was like a tube that's, you know, just covered like your bicep. Like you got two, you know, by you got two little tubes of bicep in there. And when you cut through a steak and you have a sheath of material and you can't cut it, that stuff's fashion. And it's really, you know, think about a steak knife, you hit a sheet of fascia between, you know, the, between the different muscles and you're like, man, what's that? It's incredibly strong stuff. So the fascial tube of the bicep, you know, attaches the ligaments and tendons, ligaments and tendons attached to the bone. And then when you go to lengthen your arm, uh, lengthening is fascia relaxing, but contracting the fascia has to turn off and the voltage causes the cells to activating and make a contractive impulse. So, and you got four different types of muscle, muscle cells in the body. So if you have a lot of fascia from windsurfing and kiting like I do, then you'll find, for example, that the opposite direction of getting pulled, which is more fascia dominant, when you try to contract, you'll say, wow, I'm weak relative to the, like, if you try to pull me, I'm like a berserk strong. Now, if I try to pull back and shorten, I'm relatively weak. But for example, if you put, you know, 800 pounds on a bench press and I have to hold it one inch away from straight because that's, I'm very good at doing oh. that. You know, that's where it'd be really strong. But as soon as it moves two inches, even a hundred pounds down here, I probably couldn't get it off my chest. So where people overload their bodies, they have huge amounts of fascia, mostly in the back of the body or the side of the body, the IT band, you know, side of the legs and the front of the body is not that much fascia. But what I just told you about your contractive capacity is relative. For example, for your bicep to contract, the tricep has to relax. And when something starts getting exhausted and you get weak as an Olympic athlete or a coach, you can say, okay, coach, this guy's getting an injury. You can only have 25 pounds with the right arm and five pounds with the left. So the left's messed up. What do we do to get back online to have full power like the right because he injured it? He's like, oh, maybe in six months. And what's weird is it might be six stretches with high force. And what happens is the voltage tells the fascia to release. So when you stretch with resistance, the cellular matrix causes the voltage that you're – the animated energy that you're putting through the nervous system to cause that muscle to contract tells the fascia to release. And the more force you use or the more reps, the quicker you remove that fascia. And then you go back and check the strength and the, the strength comes back on. So it's not even stretching. It's like you're finding out that there's this bloody on-off switch built into all humans. And then when you stretch somebody, they become strong instantly. So whatever's tight is weak and whatever's painful is low voltage or weak. So what you do is the, the self-aware resistance of getting your bicep stretched longer when you go back and check the contractive power. Every single time I lengthen it with resistance, the contractive power goes up. Oh my God. So if you have an injured back and then you've been taught that the, the back is overly developed and heavy with fascia, the, the stomach is short and tight. If you stretch the front of the body, the back stops hurting. So when Bob worked on me, he worked on me for three hours. He stretched the front of my body and he literally fixed my back in, two, in, two, in three hours of work. It's crazy. But it was also eight people stretching me at one time. So imagine skinny me, 145 pounds, being pulled into child pose, you know, like in a ball. And you had two people on each extremity and I stayed as contracted as hard as I could and they peeled me open. And did it over, you know, like a bunch of cushions. So it bent and lengthened the front of my body literally by two inches because I, it just caused a fascia release. And I stood up and I was like high. And I, I, I mean, I immediately knew. I was like, oh, my God. And that was it. My back. I stood up and my back wasn't trying to contract to hold me up because the front was long enough to hold it up. 
and the back turned off. So that was in 2003. My back has not gone out since, and I don't do anything to maintain my back. So I'm not an exerciser. Like, I don't go to the gym. I mean, I do get stretched a couple times a week by my assistants. I'll do a little five-minute sessions here and there, but I'm pretty damn lazy. I mean, for me, exercise is going kiting or surfing. And, and uh, That's know. why I see you light up as well when I see yeah. you cruising down the water, like that yeah. big smile. Yeah, yeah. So it's fun to ride. <laughs> <laughs> We did a nice downwinder yesterday. That was awesome, huh? Yeah. It is, yeah. it is. You also started from La Boca, or you started? Oh, uh, no, we did. Uh, we just started up at Nanny. Actually, right up on the other side, the guy that has the house right there. Yeah. 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 But he just bought a house on the beach down in, uh, in Quentro, so. It's a magical spot. He's got his own little mini bay there. Yeah. He's on the water. What do you think is, like, resistance stretching? Or you call it something else as well? Yeah, assisted resistance stretching, Why? resistance flexibility strength training, RFST. These are, you know, Bob's written a couple of books. I think the third book's about out. Uh, the gentleman is named Bob Cooley. I would definitely consider him my master. He's berserk genius. Mm. If you can imagine, um, what's really crazy about the stretching is it shows you that your psychology of your body is found in your physical body. So the shape of your body is the story of your life. That's a pretty heavy statement but it makes sense if you think about it everybody is wearing whatever they experience and if you if you stretch forty thousand people or whatever the hell bob's been doing that for 40 years so i you know or at least getting his hands on somebody for you know one or two minutes during a demo where you download the psyche and the persona and you can see a correlation between a developed part of the personality and the physicality and what they can and can't do with their body and when bob first talked to me about that it just went right over my head and i had no interest in it But in 2007, seven years after retired, uh, I called Bob up and I said, I want to go back to the Olympics. And he says, I know you do. And he says, you don't think that you can rehab your body. And he says, I'll work with you for a month and a half, two times a day, four hours a day. And a month and a half, you decide you want to go back to the Olympics. And I, what had happened is I had a dream and I woke up in the middle of the night and said, I got to go back to the Olympics and be the poster child for yoga, for raw food, for, you know, detox, whatever, you know, all the cool stuff that I had sort of developed and was implementing in the athletes I was coaching. And, At that time, I was coaching Olympic gold medalist from the 2004 Olympics, Golf Freeman from Israel. So I had a pretty good gig. I was making good money, and I was in, you know, doing about as good as I could do with my coaching business as an Olympic windsurf coach. And I, you know, I knew if I made an Olympic campaign, that was, you know, I was going to end those contracts, and it was going to cost me a bunch of money. So I talked to my wife about doing that at the time, and she agreed to it. And two trainers moved in a couple of days later and started physically stretching me. And a month and a half later, I, I lived with Bob for three weeks to a month in a compound where I was training some other athletes. And he was working on them and working as well. And after about a month and a half, my body had regenerated so much. I was just, my mind was blown. Because you can fix anything through stretching. That's a shocking rebel. I mean, you can, you can totally transform tissue. Like I've removed scar tissue and literally scars through massage. You know, Shaw was just, you know, scraping. I think we might have done a little bit of that. You know, different tools. So people ask me what I do. I'm like, well, I'm a body worker and I try to turn people back to liquid, you know, mm -hmm. get them back to the cosmic plasma stage. Like pre and post orgasm. Anybody has an orgasm, the whole body just goes, oh, you know. So when you stretch yourself, the heaviness of, uh, you know, the angst that you're carrying, that static comes out of the system. The tissue is, is transfigured on the spot. You get your voltage back, and if, you, if you're dealing with a part of your body that's been dysfunctional, man, your confidence and your belief in the future, it's, it's miracle work to stretch people. Because I'll have people come in and they're like, oh, my shoulder's been frozen for 10 years. I've seen 50 doctors in 20 countries, and nobody's, and I'm like, you know, five minutes later, like, it's moving. 
because their consciousness is visiting and they're getting an analytical assessment of what they can and can't do with their body. How to get it out to more people? Why it hasn't gotten out to more? That's an interesting little question. Hmm. Bob's a perfectionist. Yeah. Um, when you go onto his website, he doesn't have a lot of facilitators that he gives credence to to be worthy of his website, which is sad because so many people go, oh, there's only eight people on the website. And I know he's trained four to 6,000 people. I think there's six people that he trusts. They're probably the ones that are the hardcore guys that he's been training nonstop. So that may be part of the reason. But I think it needs, because he's not an athlete per se, it doesn't give the credibility of and then the languaging, like I think, you know, if you asked me to explain resistance stretching in 30 seconds, I could probably do a better job than most mm. because I got a, I have a very interesting uh, full spectrum uh, mix of healing and then also dealing with professional athletes. So when somebody goes bullshit, I go, well, guess what? The Olympic gold medalist I coach, Olympic silver medalist coach, guy, all these, you know, go down the list, all these guys, this is something I do to them every day and it helps. And there's a reason that they've had a little bit of an advantage because I'm constantly trying to find something that not everybody knows about and download that into my athletes or my clients. So, and then because of my results, people have more certainty. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the masters a couple thousand years ago said, you know, it is done unto you as you believe. So if, if somebody says, oh, you know, go see Gabby and he makes everybody feel better, then psychologically they're already waiting. That That's 30% placebo effect is already working because it, and then when I explain what they do, it's, it's not like anything else. And it sort of, you know, it's a mix of Chinese medicine and, you know, Ayurvedic and acupuncture and yoga. And it's a hard thing to, to explain. And then it's very hands-on labor-intensive work. And I don't think most people want to work as hard as I do to work on people. But you don't have to stretch people with huge amounts of force. So I would say that I've moved my practice a little more spiritual, so less intensity. And I use it as an excuse to get the person to have like an inner dialogue with their unconscious because when you stretch people, you immediately find pain and you find a lack of range of motion somewhere and where you don't want to move is where you're stuck. And that's exactly where you need to go. You need to develop yourself in places where you're stuck. And that's the great analogy. So the conversations we have, um, you don't explain that in five minutes. And some people get upset because I might talk to him for 30 minutes, but I know that something I said has been such a traumatic, like awakening insightful comment, you know, maybe it flipped their perspective on something and all of a sudden they, they look at something that they've always looked at from a place where they were stuck and they go, oh, wow, I never thought about it like that. And then the, of course the, the, you know, the arms and the body starts moving. So it's fun to fix people like that. <clears throat> must be amazing when you see, I think it's the same with coaching. When you ask someone a question and suddenly like, it makes them reflect and see things in a new light and then they can continue from there. So flexibility, you know, becoming flexible in all ways is the uh, one of the things that Bob says, and I'd agree. You make somebody flexible physically than emotionally, spiritually, and uh, mentally or thinking type. They become more flexible. I'm always amazed how when I get stuck trying to deal with a problem, how I try to deal with it from the same place all the time. And what I love is when you, you know, interact with other people, you're like, wow, I would have never. Yeah, I've been trying to climb over the wall. And he's like, why don't you just open a door, walk around the side of the wall? Yeah. Like, why didn't it? You know, we, we hit something and we we're programmed the reason we're stuck is we're not running off intellect or or downloading or letting access to you know your higher intelligence come through which comes more from meditation or as you know people i know guys that were very successful bond traders that they would get downloads when they're dreaming mm -hmm. and then they would trust it 
So, you know, we get premonitions. We have all, you know, all these different ways that we can collect information or perceive reality and get shifts, you know, be it medicine. You know, some people love tripping on mushrooms or doing acid or just doing some breath work or not eating for a week, going to a, you know, black cave, not talking, you know, Vipassana meditation, don't talk for a week. There's all things, all sorts of things you can do to shift your reality mindset so you get completely different perspectives. And then when you go and work on something that you're stuck on, you might, you get a different insight. But the value of coaching is that someone can bring their wisdom or, or say, hey, talk to this guy. And so that's the fun thing about these podcasts is where there's a real uh, decentralization of the genius that runs through, you know, what I would call the human condition. We have all the answers and solutions. We don't have to reduce the population. There's, a, there's more than enough abundance, but we have to live differently and more in harmony or, or maybe go back like we used to live 50, 100 years ago, which is something I really like about down here. Life's way simpler. And then maybe you don't need as many solutions because hmm. when life gets complicated, the solutions are more, you know, more forced on, you know, you get forced into corners. So. <laughs> but, uh, but the simple life, I think that's one of the key things as well, that we yeah. overcomplicate life. Yeah. And if we can make it more simple. Yeah. Eat more, you know, wild, local, ripe, grow some of your own food, you know, be, you know, be involved with somebody that, that grows food. Mm. You know, even if you're trading tomatoes with your neighbor, you know, I got good cucumbers and that's all I can grow. You know, I like cucumbers. I grow them in my one pot in my, on my balcony, you know, being a raw foodist, I was, uh, I would sometimes have 15 or 20 different sprouts going. And, you know, for there was a couple of years I ate mostly sprouts because if you reverse engineer, you know, anything to the extreme end. Okay. So is dead food stronger than live food? Well, live food's got enzymes. We've got minerals, got the proteins, amino acids, blah, 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 vitamins, you know, all the stuff that we talk about. So why are we cooking our food, you know? Yeah, when I went on a raw food binge, when I started it, it fixed a lot of chronic low-grade stuff on my body, which was cool. So many people see that. Yeah. Like, yeah, making that change. So. But it might be too extreme because you can't do it year-round and you can't eat, you know, 70% of your food that's coming from another country. Like when I lived in Canada, you know, six months into the winter and eating fruit for breakfast, you innately realize something's wrong with that scenario. And it's different when you get it from down here, mm -hmm. very first, than when yep. you have the ship. Time yeah. is running, Mike. I know you have to run as well. Yeah, man. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, maybe there's something interesting to have uh, been had in the storytelling. <laughs> so, sure. Thanks for having me, buddy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Island. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes on how to be the best version of yourself. And if you found this show helpful, then please leave us a review so more people will learn about the podcast or share with a friend who can benefit from it too. Thank you again and have a wonderful day.